Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part three of our uh, look at incidentalomas and a practical uh, strategy to dealing with them. Now, we spoke about kidney and adrenal in the last talk. Let's now look at pancreas. Incidental pancreatic lesions are one of the biggest challenges for us. We recognize that up to 5% of adults have small incidental pancreatic lesions. And if you go by the MR literature, that's on CT 5%. MR says up to 20%. Most of these are small cysts or IPMNs. The question is, what do you do with these lesions? Do you need to follow them? Remember, in theory, IPMNs are precursors for pancreatic cancer. But less than 3% of patients with IPMNs will go on to develop cancer, which means 97% of the patients who have small cystic lesions they're incidental findings of no significance, but how do you separate the two? How do you deal with these patients? We also, uh, these days with better protocols, particularly more arterial phase imaging, are picking up incidental lesions that are neuroendocrine tumors, and we'll speak about them as well. We published this article a number of years ago, and that was on 16 slice CT, saying outpatient population, 2.6% of patients had cystic pancreatic lesions. But remember, the better your scanner, the thinner your sections, the higher the resolution, the more cysts you are going to see. And so the number now is typically 5% at a minimum. In this article by Shannon Navarro a year ago, Incidental pancreatic cysts are commonly accounted in practice, 9% reported incidence on CT, and 27% incidence on MR. When we talk about cystic lesions, we're typically thinking about IPMNs, but other incidental lesions are serous adenomas, which are benign, mucinous cystic neoplasms, which always are considered pre-malignant. There are also pseudocysts, epithelial cysts, and lymphopathelial cysts, but these are all, of course, benign. The key then lies in separating what lesions are of concern, which are simply leave-alone lesions. So if you think about it that way, things that are definitely benign, serous adenomas. Now, I will make the point that if serous adenomas get large, they can cause symptoms and will need to be resected. Pancreatitis-associated fluid collections, congenital or syndromic pancreatic cysts, and lymphopathelial cysts, which is a cystic lesion, low density often occurring at the edge of the pancreatic gland. Now, the lesions that are definitely malignant, spend tumors, solid and pseudopapillary epithelial neoplasms, usually females, usually younger patients, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, particularly when they're cystic, and of course, cystic neuroendocrine tumors catch there, often the lesions, besides being well-defined in cystic and small, have an enhancing rim. Remember that IPMNs do not enhance in the periphery. Cystic neuroendocrine tumors indeed do. Just some examples. Classic cystic lesion, IPMN. Again, sometimes easier to see on the coronal view. We look at these lesions, the typical Tanaka criteria, when to worry was three centimeters. It was said for a while that three centimeters or greater, the patients needed surgery. No if, and, buts, or maybes. You can see another example of, a, of an IPMN, but in this differential, based on location, if the patient is surely a 40 or 50 year old female, you would have to put an MCN in there. 
you also would have to put a serous adenoma. One thing about this lesion and something we'll focus on is you need to see a dilated pancreatic duct or at least see a pancreatic duct in most cases of IPMNs. We talk about IPMNs as main branch where the main branch is dilated over seven millimeters or side branch IPMNs. Main duct always are concerning from pre-malignant or malignancy. Side branch typically are the ones we follow. Uh, when I see a lesion in the body of the pancreas and there's no visible pancreatic duct, I'm always thinking, particularly in the right age group and sex, middle-aged females, I'm thinking about an MCN. Now, one challenge, of course, also is when you look at IPMNs, they're often multiple. One looks okay, which do you worry about? This came up also when you were doing surgery. If you have multiple IPMNs, do you do a total pancreatectomy? Well, if you're worried about pre-malignant, you can't just do a Whipple's or a distal. You got to do a total pancreatectomy, which has its own issues from diabetes to uh, decreased survival. And again, we look at all of the lesions. Typically, what happens is the one that's most concerning may be the one that's sampled or followed most closely. And here you can see about a three centimeter lesion in the pancreatic head. Now, we look carefully for septations. The concern with IPMNs always is malignancy. So nodularity is always giving you surgery. Thin septations can occur. One of the challenges at times is separating IPMNs from serous cystadenomas, particularly if there are thin septations. Is it a serous cystadenoma with minimal septations or an IPMN with a bit more septations? Remember, serous cystadenomas don't need to be followed. IPMNs typically do. And here you can see a nice thin septation, particularly well seen on the coronal view. Now, some of the facts about IPMNs, usually seen in an older population, though we are seeing them more frequently at all age groups. The key, of course, is pancreatic duct involvement. As I mentioned, are they main duct or side branch or mixed type IPMNs? A main duct of over one centimeter is suggestive of a main duct IPMN. The truth is seven millimeters these days is the concerning number for most people. And main duct IPMNs have a higher incidence of malignancy and usually require surgery because I think they're going to be concerned that it could develop into malignancy and the patient will get surgery. In terms of IPMNs, what things predict malignancy? Well, again, the three centimeter rule over three cm is more worrisome. If lesions grow over two millimeters a year, if there's a mural nodule or thick septations, particularly septations that are enhancing. And of course, if patients have abdominal pain or unexplained episodes of pancreatitis, then you're always worried that that lesion should come out. Now for radiologists, what do we need to do? That is really a challenge. Now, the issue is that the criteria are continually being developed. Uh, one of the things that different societies have different criteria. And they all realize that the criteria will lead to a lot of surgeries that aren't necessary. So perhaps you need to change the criteria. You need to rethink what you're doing, but again, that's a challenge. So again, size is important to us. Trying to recognize what the lesion is. Is it a serous cystadenoma? Patients with simple cysts under three CM can be followed, but Again, how often do you follow the patient? Is it with CT or MR? Do you alternate CT and MR?
Cysts smaller than 1 cm cannot be characterized further, and typically, particularly in older patients, perhaps there's no need to, for follow-up. And I think one of the things people are looking at is there a certain age when you should stop following or not follow at all. Now, the problem, of course, is there's no age that there's, that, well, you could say there's no risk. But again, all of these things become statistical. And the question is, what do you do? Now, some recommendations again. Aspiration is strongly advised to exclude a pseudocyst uh, before any surgery is performed. Patients must remain asymptomatic during follow-up period. And this was some of the features that were listed in the ACR uh, incidental findings related to pancreatic cystic lesions from 2010. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is that everybody has their own guidelines. Everyone modifies them. Every institution seems to change things just a little bit. This was the rules from Mass General, asymptomatic thin-walled unilocular cystic lesions under 3CM, or side branch IPMN should be followed by CTRMR and six and 12 months after detection. The reason the usual recommendation is six months initially is you don't know the trajectory of the lesion. Once you follow it a little bit, you can spread these terms out. But again, how much of a spread can you possibly do? Cystic lesions with more complex features or with growth rates greater than a centimeter a year should be followed more closely or recommended for resection. Symptomatic cystic lesions, Neoplasms with high malignant potential and lesions over 3CM should be referred for surgical evaluation. Okay, so again, uh, we could use uh, EUS as a way of getting more information on the lesions, but again, the recommendation here is a very aggressive recommendation. Now, many institutions are aggressive. Hopkins, Mass General are just two good examples where excellent surgeons are present, NYU, and they tend to be more aggressive. But the fact is they are rethinking those policies. And again, I think everything is a bit in flux. Article by Bobin, despite published guidance, recommendations and reported awareness, fewer than half of follow-up recommendations are consistent with the guidance and consider variability persists among radiologists. And let me just rephrase that. Variability persists among GI docs and surgeons and radiologists. And all of us tend to get used to what we do in our own institution. So again, it becomes very important. Um, it's hard to be putting down, or as a radiologist, uh, recommendations from an ACR white paper if nobody is following them, or if you're going to have some issues with your referring docs because it's creating confusion for the patients. Now, in this article by Navarro, IPMs are cystic neoplasms with variable degrees of malignant potential. They may evolve into dysplasia or invasive carcinoma and are associated with a higher risk for development of pancreatic adenocarcinoma in the glands separate from the IPMN sites. Um, Low-risk IPMNs have an approximately 8% chance of progression, high risk about 25% in 10 years. So you could see that it's very challenging. Now, most people, I know Ralph Rubin, who's really the god of pathology in terms of pancreatic cysts, will say it's less than a 3% risk of developing a malignancy. Now, there was a recent, and it's 2017 is the most recent revision, 
And this is a very good revision by Alec Megabo, but you can see the challenges in the paper. Now, the first thing is they divided things into five groups, under 1.5, 1.5 to 2.5 cm, 1.5 to 2.5 without or with ductilatation, over 2.5, and then they put down groups of patients over 80. How long do you follow these patients? Nine to 10 year follow-up. Okay, think about this for a second. A minimum of nine to 10 year follow-up, and yes, when the 10 years are up, perhaps you need to follow for another 10 years. If everybody with a pancreatic cyst, even 5% of the population, got follow-up studies, there'd be no room for anybody else to be scanned. And here's their uh, chart. Now, the one for incidental pancreatic cyst in patients greater than 80, under 2.5 versus over 2.5, again, it's kind of a matter of putting things into risk categories. One would obviously be very careful because, as you know, a Whipple's procedure is not a trivial procedure, and the older the patient, the more complications patients have from a Whipple's procedure, and so you're really balancing the risk-reward. I think things like shared discussion with the patients become very important. They then divided lesions 1.5 or less, whether it's 65 or less in age, or 65 to 79. You can see talking about re-imaging, talking about stable, nine years to stop, again, complex, then again, 1.5 to 2.5. 2, 1.5 to 2.5, incidental communication with the duct, again, incidental greater than 2.5, again, Maybe it's a serous adenoma, but if it's not, is it low risk, high risk? When do you need EUS? A very complicated set of charts. And Dr. Megabo does make the point that the reality is the natural history of incidental cysts remains uncertain, and our recommendations cannot be simple or definitive. Since 2010, several multi-institution and specialty societies, consensus papers, meta-analysis, and large-scale observational studies have appeared, but the quality of evidence has been characterized as poor or inconclusive, and conclusions remain controversial. So I think the point Alex is making very clearly is this is an attempt to do the best we can, but we know this really isn't perfect, and there's a lot of different criteria. And again, you really have to work closely with your surgeon and with your GI team at your hospital, come up with some rules, and then work closely with patients. Now, all of those charts, and I always don't particularly like charts. They kind of look good in the article, but it's hard to use them. So here's some of the principles. All incidental cysts should be presumed to be mucinous unless the cyst has definitive features of an alternative histology like a serous cyst adenoma. Such presumed mucinous cysts should be followed or considered for surgery. We recommend nine to 10 years of follow-up. If the cyst grows, the frequency of follow-up should increase or EUS with FNA should be done. I think in the future, there's work being done to look at the fluid where you can predict from the fluid if this lesion has a potential in the future to become malignant versus those that don't have the potential and those who don't have the potential, you could stop at that point. So I think there is hope for looking at cis fluid. Cis size becomes critical. Again, their thresholds, somewhat arbitrary 
Remember, the typical thing was three centimeters or greater, but I think they tried to, uh, in this article, try to break things up a little bit more. And again, they made the point that with cysts growing, you could be into less than 1.5, but then have to move into the 1.5 or move into the 2.5. Again, it's a very dynamic process. Development of worrisome features or high-risk stigmata. Again, nodularity, particularly enhancing nodules, thickened septations, regardless of size, makes you worry and you need to do EUS. And again, obviously over 3CM with worrisome features. Um, again, you need to be very careful. And EUS is what people are going to do in practice. Comparison with prior studies is critical. But again, we all know these lesions do grow. It is comforting if you have a scan from five years ago and things haven't changed. But it does not mean you don't need to watch the patient. So it's great to look at old scans, but it's not going to allow you to not evaluate that patient further. At Hopkins, typically we're doing follow-up with CT or MR, uh, initially at three to six months, depending on how the lesion looks. Depending on the clinical history and symptoms, we'll be doing EUS. And surgery, main duct IPMNs are getting surgery. Suspected MCNs are getting surgery. And an interval growth of over three to five millimeters will be getting surgery. Now, we have a multidisciplinary conference. We get together pathology and radiology, the GI folks, um, the surgical folks. And that is a good way of doing things, coming to some consensus conclusions that can be very, very helpful. Um, you can see the, obviously, the flow charts are very complicated. Uh, using our multidisciplinary conference, you can see our recommendations did vary from the recommendations patient had prior to coming to the clinic. Sometimes the recommendations were the same by us and by the prior people. Sometimes we were more aggressive and sometimes we were less aggressive. So again, there is an impact on multidisciplinary conference. But again, I think the issue comes down, if you go to different institutions, recommendations will indeed vary. Our conclusion, multidisciplinary input associated with multidisciplinary pancreatic cancer is helpful and cysts is helpful in the management of patients with pancreatic cysts and alters the management in up to 30% of patients assessed. Now, of course, you want to be certain that's correctly changes the management, and we hope this indeed is the case. The most common diagnosis was branch duct intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasm. Uh, the committee altered the risk category in 8% of these patients. Management category was altered in 30% of 225 patients. Management was increased in 52, including 22 patients who were recommended for surgical resection. Management was decreased in 16, including 10 who had their recommendation changed from surgery to surveillance. So you can see that when you have this multidisciplinary group, sometimes you're more aggressive and sometimes you're less aggressive. And, but again, the changing of management is very critical, but it does make the point that different groups are going to have different results and different recommendations. If the criteria were perfect, if everything was a cookie cutter, then everyone should have the same recommendations, which is obviously not the case in just a series 30% of cases. Now, in the future, hopefully, we are working on things like AI to make this more reproducible, to better analyze the data, 
and perhaps with AI, the results between different institutions will be closer. Now let's look at some of the appearances you need to recognize. One is serous cyst adenoma. Variable appearance, it can be just one large unilocular cyst, but here are multiple cystic lesions, kind of like a Swiss cheese appearance, often large, often with calcification, classic serous cyst adenoma. Again, no malignant potential. They're leave-alone lesions unless the patient is symptomatic, then you will resect them, but they're benign lesions. Another serous cyst adenoma, here in the head of the pancreas with thin septations, calcification, which really helps me feel good about the diagnosis of a serous cyst adenoma. Here's a lesion in the body of the pancreas with septations, just a few thin septations. This is the classic location, classic appearance of an MCN. This septation is thickened, it's irregular. This is either malignant or pre-malignant. All MCNs will be resected. One helpful hint, with MCNs, you typically do not see evidence of a dilated pancreatic duct. Here's another MCN, same location but larger, septations, some of that haziness. These are the things you look for in patients with MCNs. And here it is again, just a very much appearance, ovarian stroma is typically what you're going to find within those septations. Now I mentioned also neuroendocrine tumors, small hypervascular lesions, here it's five millimeters. Everyone would agree that a neuroendocrine tumor under a sonometer, you leave alone. Some people will agree under two CM, you leave alone and you carefully follow. A lot of work being done on trying to classify lesions in terms of grade one or grade two and three and using radiomics for that. And that in fact is some work we've been doing as well. But again, because scanners are getting better, you can pick up these incidental neuroendocrine tumors. In the old days, you couldn't pick up the symptomatic neuroendocrine tumors. Forget picking up incidental ones. So just a really nice example. One thing, of course, we always have to emphasize is the protocol. Here's an obvious lesion in the head of the pancreas, neuroendocrine. There's no duct dilatation or contour change. Here's that same lesion if you would have venous phase imaging you would never recognize that lesion. So the ability to detect vascular tumors, for example, as in this case with a neuroendocrine tumor, is totally reliant on the protocol you have. As we use more early phase imaging, we will be picking up more incidental lesions. It does make the point that lesion detection is so attached to how you do the study, and that's, of course, no surprise. Um, this article by Herrera, Incidental detection of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors has increased over the last decade due to widespread use of advanced imaging techniques. No doubt about that. Again, the question about how do you manage these patients, how do you decide whether that lesion is aggressive or not, again, size criteria can be helpful, a biopsy and tissue typing is helpful, and now things like AI and radiomics may indeed prove to be helpful. So very, very important. It has been suggested that non-MEN related, non-functioning and asymptomatic neuroendocrine tumors under 2CM with a KI67 index less than two carry a low risk of metastasis and may be observed in the absence of clinical or radiologic criteria of malignancy or progression, especially in older patients. So again, it's kind of a risk reward. How aggressive do you wanna be? 
Again, we're looking at statistics, but trying to get more information. The biopsy of these lesions and looking at many of the markers may indeed prove very valuable in determining who needs and who doesn't need surgery. And again, different guidelines, the European Neuroendocrine Society and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN, suggest that observation is reasonable for patients with neuroendocrine tumors under two centimeters. So again, you need to be thinking, but these rules are constantly changing. As is, for the time being, patients with tumors under one cm can be safely observed. Those with one to two are best served by individualized care based on factors set forth in the guidelines. So again, not exactly perfectly clear. Just to show you, and I'll stop here on this talk, we published the paper, it was submitted, but it was presented at the Pancreas Club looking at neuroendocrine tumors, looking at grading with radiomics. And again, I won't go through the details, you can look at the slides yourself, but the conclusion was that radiomics allowed us to predict the aggressiveness of tumors and allowed us to predict with a radiomic signature what patients needed to be, have surgery and what patients could be followed. And it seems that we're getting to a pretty good accuracy stage. There's been several other articles that have shown this as well. So again, very important. Now let's stop there. There's a few more things I wanna speak about in terms of pancreas and incidental pancreatic lesions but I've used up way too much time. So let's come back in a few minutes and pick this up. See you then. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.